I want to just read to you 2 Samuel chapter 7. You know, Jesus Christ was not born into a void. He was born into a time of great expectation. Expectation of something that God had promised to do. 
from the very beginning, when sin entered the world, you see God from the very beginning in Genesis 3 making promises. I'm going to bring a Savior. I'm going to bring a Messiah. I'm going to bring a hero that's going to fix this. And we see these promises again and again throughout the Old Testament. In fact, you could say the Old Testament is a book of promise of the Messiah. And one of the great ones is 2 Samuel 7 to King David. And listen to what God says to him here. His promise. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you before. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan the prophet spoke to David. So a thousand years before Jesus was born, there was an expectation that a Savior, a King, would come from the line of David. And he would bring a throne to the world that was eternal. of grace in man's human frailty this is the wonder of Jesus laying aside his power and glory humbly he entered our world chose the
Christ we had longed for, promise of God in Jesus. Through his obedience we are forgiven, opening the floodgates of heaven. All our hopes and dreams we bring, gladly as an offering. Fullness of life and joy unspeakable, God's gift in love to the physician wants to write an orderly account to his friend Theophilus about the faith that he has in Christ. And in the very beginning, he talks very much about the birth of Jesus and who he comes from and who he is. And listen to what he says about Zechariah the high priest, John the Baptist's father, who breaks forth in praise, proclaiming who Jesus is. Please listen. Luke 1, verse 67. And his father, meaning John the Baptist, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. And notice as He's proclaiming, He's prophesying, this is who the child is. He's the one who's come to fulfill the promises, the covenant promises made to Abraham to bring salvation to the world by faith alone. The promises made to David that a kingdom would come, an eternal kingdom. And then we see in chapter 4 him telling us and showing us the genealogy of Jesus that yes, he does come from the tribe of Judah and the family of David, fulfilling God's promises. So we come to worship God for a Savior who didn't come in a vacuum but came in great expectation to be not just the Savior of Israel, but the Savior of the world. So let's just pray, please. Heavenly Father, we praise you right now. Lord, looking back and reflecting upon promises made by you through the Scriptures from the very beginning that you were going to send a Savior, a Messiah, a hero, one who would do great things, one who would crush the work of the enemy, one who would bring salvation to the world, one who would sit on the throne of his father David. He would be a king. 
one who would suffer mightily as the Lamb of God for us. Lord, and we just praise you now for your faithfulness to your promise that it is now by grace and it is through faith alone that we are saved in the promises of the gospel. Come to us, fulfilled in the life and the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 2. Boy, Christmas worship services are fantastic, aren't they? Just the Christmas carols and the readings, we feel like we're tapping into something deep about God's wonderful plan of salvation. Luke chapter 2, it's on page 857 in your pew Bible. You know, as we stand here tonight, somewhere around 2021 or 22 years ago, give or take a, a few years, in a small town outside Jerusalem, a young Israelite girl gave birth to a child And Christians believe that this is the event that actually changed the entire world. Because Christianity hinges upon Jesus Christ. And the most important question you will ever answer in your life is, is, what child is this? What do you believe about this child? So let's let's look at Luke chapter 2 and hear God's word. Luke said that when he wrote this gospel that he has given a careful and orderly account of the life of Christ. So let's likewise give our careful attention to this part of God's Word, Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Will you pray with me? Lord, we've heard this story many times, and it's a familiar passage. And because of that, we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. I pray that your hand would be upon me as I preach and Give us attentive ears and attentive hearts to what you would have to say to us. Let us hear your voice this night. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we're just going to have a brief meditation on this Christmas story, a few devotional thoughts about the birth of Christ, 
Uh, I spoke last week to the stars about this, so they get to hear some of it again. Three things to think about with me. First, consider the hand behind history in verses 1 through 3. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor that's mentioned in this passage, was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar through his mother's line. In fact, Julius Caesar had bequeathed the kingdom to him. And interestingly, Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor to take the name Caesar upon himself, and it later became sort of a name for the Roman emperors, like the, maybe like the Henrys or the um, James in England. And the word Augustus is simply a title. It means majestic or sublime or highly revered, like the honorable. Now, this Caesar was interesting. He was known for being a very ruthless man, especially early on when he was seeking to establish his kingdom. But once his kingdom was established, Caesar began to be known for his sort of wise administration of the Roman Empire. And so here in this passage, this Caesar Augustus, as he's gotten older and mature, he he decides to take a census of the Roman world, and probably it was for taxation purposes. Uh, He likely thought about it for a while. He probably consulted with his advisors, and then he decided on this course of action. So here is this earthly ruler, and he is simply doing what he thinks is best. And so we read in verse 1, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. It seems so simple. This Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, decides what he wants, that he wants to count the people of his kingdom, and he's simply doing what he thinks best. And the result of this is that people are moved around the empire. Everybody has to go to their own hometown to register. And what's happening here is Caesar is the human hand, but there's actually a greater hand at work here. This decree is the sovereign work of God, and what's really happening is God is moving his chess pieces around the board of human history. He's orchestrating his, his win. He's orchestrating his checkmate on sin and sorrow and suffering and death. He's doing something in human history. He's bringing about his grand design for the salvation of man. Jesus is coming into the world to destroy the works of the devil and to be a savior for his people. And he needs to be born in Bethlehem because that's already been prophesied 700 years previously. And God uses this ordinary administration of this Roman emperor to get him there. Isn't that fascinating? That Caesar Augustus came up with his own plan and he thought he was wise and this is a good plan of action. And little did he know that the sovereign hand of God was on everything he was doing. Galatians 4.4, a familiar passage, tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights as son. So we say it like this, Caesar Augustus chose to act of his own volition, but he did so because it was God's time. And we don't know why God chose this particular time in history. Some people have noted that There was this thing called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, which lasted from about 27 B.C. to about 180 A.D. It was the time of the most peace in the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know that the road systems were fantastic. And so what a great time for the Messiah to be born, the Savior to be born, and what a great time for his disciples to scatter 
and preach the word throughout the Roman Empire because at this time there were 70 million citizens in the Roman Empire. God knew what he was doing. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. We all also know something else from the Old Testament that Jesus was going to come during the time of the Roman Empire. Uh, Don't have time to read it, but in the book of Daniel, there is a king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar, and he has this vision of this statue And the statue has this head of gold, this chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron, and feet of clay and iron. And then there's this rock that comes, and it strikes the feet of the statue, and the statue crumbles and falls, and the rock becomes a mountain which fills the whole earth. And we know what that vision means. The head of gold is the Babylonian empire. The chest of silver is the Medo-Persian Empire, the belly and thighs of bronze are the Greek Empire, and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay are the Roman Empire. Rome was tough. It had iron legs, but it was also brittle. It was ready to crumble and fall. And so here's Jesus Christ. He comes in the time of the Roman Empire. He's born in this fourth empire. And amazingly, this is all foretold 600 years before Jesus was born. So in the time of the feet of bronze and clay, Caesar Augustus issues a decree that a census be taken of the entire Roman world. He had no idea he was fulfilling God's plan. He was simply doing what he thought best. But God was sending his Messiah at a certain time in history into a certain place. And that really leads to our second point. The first point is... um, or the second point is the history behind the hand behind history. So in verse 4 through 6, we read this. Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth to a son. Rusty's already mentioned this just a minute ago, but this, this is really bursting with meaning for the Jewish re- reader. Here's David. David was Israel's good king, a man after God's own heart. He was Israel's singer of songs. He was the one whose kingship pictured the kingship of Jesus himself. And David reigned about 1,000 B.C. And at the end of David's reign, as Rusty mentioned earlier, and he read the passage, God appeared to David and he said, "There there will be a descendant from you who will sit on the throne. But his kingdom will be forever. So it's mysterious. We don't know exactly what that means, or David didn't know exactly what that means, but we do. That there is going to be this eternal descendant of David who's going to sit on the throne. And uh, that's Jesus. We also read in these verses that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Micah wrote, But you... O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. You also know this probably. Bethlehem means house of bread. The bread of life is going to come from this city. So I'm asking you tonight, do you see how fascinating this is? Out of this city of David, in this township of Bethlehem, right in the middle of a census that got him there, is born the son of David, the bread of life, for me and for you. 
So that's the hand behind the history and the history behind the hand behind the history. And lastly, consider this, the stunning significance of this history, which is this. Jesus comes to bring joy to the world. Probably verses 10 and 11 are the, are the best-known verses in this passage. And the angel comes and he says to these shepherds, I have some really good news for you. This is a news about a great joy. In the Greek, this is fantastic. It's mega joy. <laughs> Y'all all know the word mega. Mega joy. There's a lot of lesser joys in life. This is going to be a great joy. I have good news for you. It's a news about a great joy. And it's a joy for all people. It's not for one class of people. It's not for one race of people. Rather, it's for all the people on the earth, male and female, skinny or wide. You like that? A good way to say that? Uh, Tall or short, educated or uneducated, rich or poor, slave or free, king or peasant, Jew or Gentile, no matter what race you are, no matter if you like the way you look or you don't like the way you look, this is good news for me and for you. So what is it that brings such joy? This is what it is. That some 2,000 years ago, in the city of David, a descendant of David, an eternal king, was born. And this descendant came to save us. We're told three things about Jesus right here. Rusty said the promises throughout the Bible would be that a hero would come, that a deliverer would come. And notice that it says Jesus is our Savior. He's the one who came to deliver us from the human problems of hatred and anger and lust and pride and impatience and jealousy and unbelief and faithlessness. One who came to deliver us from all the miseries and sorrows of this life. And we read that he is the Christ. Many of you know, but that's the New Testament word for the Old Testament, Messiah, which means anointed one. He's the one that God has set apart and ordained for this task. Jesus the son of Mary and Joseph, the son of God and Mary. And he's the Lord, which means it's God himself coming into the world. Unto you is born a Savior. Isn't that fascinating? Not just sent, but born. This is, this is a little Christmas solidarity. Solidarity is a word used to mean oneness or unity. If a group of people show solidarity, they support one another for the group. Jesus became one with the human race. He took on flesh so that we might be restored and reconciled to God and be one with God again and be in a relationship with him again, that we might be a people for God. So Jesus came in his flesh to defeat sin and Satan. He came to save us and deliver us by going to the cross and die for us. Now, this week I was reading in my little book, 365 Days on This Day in Christian History, and I learned about the first manger scene St. Francis of Assisi, not St. Francis the Sissy. St. Francis of Assisi was born in 1182 in central Italy. He came from a wealthy family. He went off to war. He was captured. And after he got out of the horrors of war, he became a Christian. And he read some verses in the Bible about preaching the word. And he said, this is what I'm going to give my life to. And he spent his remaining days making Christ real to everyone he met. Um, and this led him to come up with the first nativity scene. He, he went to a city and he built a crib. He arranged the hay. He finished the scenes. Crowds gathered full of curiosity and wonder. 
And there on Christmas Eve, Francis preached the wonder of God made man, born a naked infant and laid in a manger. Behold your God, he said, a poor and helpless child, the ox and the donkey beside him. Your God is of your flesh. Amen. Hebrews says it like this. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. No wonder Christianity is about such joy. It's about being, it's about being saved. It's about being delivered. There's always joy when the rescuer comes, right? Many of you read the, the book Unbroken, the story of Louis Zamperini. And uh, I read that several years ago. He was captured at the end of World War II and taken into a, a prisoner of war camp by the Japanese. He was sort of beat mercilessly. After, actually, after his plane went down, he spent, uh, I think, maybe 180 days or something in the ocean fighting off sharks. And then finally he's captured. And, and then his torture in the prison camp was worse than, um, than fighting off the sharks. And just reading that book, I've never been so excited for somebody to be rescued in my life when <laughs> they came and got him out of the POW camp. There's always joy when we get saved from peril, isn't there? But as the story goes on, there's something fascinating because Louis Zamperini, at first his life is okay, but then his life begins to spiral downhill. And he struggles with alcohol and other addictions and his life sort of gets worse and worse and worse. And then one day, he meets Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And he has a joy that's greater than the joy of being released from the prison camp. Because the greatest need that you and I have is for spiritual deliverance, to be saved from sin and selfishness. This morning, Rusty said we have this pervasive self-love. That's really what sin is. I know that's a Bible word, but sin means we love ourselves and we follow our own desires and we don't worship and honor and love our Creator. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, your sins have separated you from God. And so Jesus comes to knock down that barrier and to take it away. And that's where true joy is found. And now, maybe you're here tonight and you're exploring Christianity, and I want you to consider this. One of the unique character, characteristics of Christianity is joy. It really is. Last year, I, I looked this up, and I may have my research wrong, but I did look in the Koran. I Googled it. I searched it. And the word joy is used one time. In the Quran, and the word joyful is used three times. But in Christianity, you get something very different. There are more than 200 references to joy within, in the Old Testament and more than 200 references to joy in the New Testament. And if you read through the Gospels, this is what happens. When people meet Jesus in the New Testament, they walk away with joy. Paralytics sing and dance and skip. A woman at the well gets relief and sings for joy. In the New Testament, we read, we read of discovering uh, the treasure uh, that is God and that, how that brings joy. And that God himself has joy when sinners repent. 
You know, joy is this marked characteristic of the early church. And even in the Gospel of Luke, this is sort of fascinating. Um, the Gospel of Luke sounds particularly in the New Testament this note of joy. It's a great place to look because people are always rejoicing and singing and happy and joyful. You might know this. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented as the Messiah, this Old Testament Messiah who's come to God's people. He's the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. In the Gospel of Mark, which is written to Romans, Jesus is presented as the Son of God, this man who goes to the cross. So you have the Roman centurion say, surely this man is the Son of God in the book of Mark. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. But in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is the Savior. And all kinds of people come to Jesus whose lives are broken, whose lives are difficult, whose lives are messed up, and they leave with eternal joy in their heart. And so Christianity is this source of true joy. Do you have that this night? You know, in this life you might find happiness, but joy only comes from God. Happiness tends to be fleeting, right? It tends to be circumstantial. It depends on temporal factors like circumstances and other people and how they relate to us. But joy is something that God plants in your soul when you know that you have a right relationship with him. Happiness comes from having our hearts satisfied with earthly things. Joy comes from having our hearts satisfied with eternal things. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you're always going to be happy, but you will have joy even in the midst of sadness and distress because joy comes from God. Let me close with this. When I lived in Florence, Alabama... Uh, I went to the McDonald's one day, and there was a very large play place, and there were some kids playing in this play place. And there was this mother, and she went in there, and she was trying to get her kids out of the play place, and she kept calling to her children, but they wouldn't come out, and it got, she, she actually got kind of embarrassed. And finally, she turned to me and sort of sheepishly said, you know, once they go in there, sometimes you can't get them out. <laughs> and I said, ma'am, Sometimes you just have to go in and get them. And I hope you see that that's what God did. He entered our world, and he came and got us. He came and rescued us. Have you believed in him? Do you know that joy? And I know that many of you do. And believer in Jesus Christ, as we come to the communion table, and this Christmas season, I just want to exhort you to walk in that joy. God loves you this day. Your Savior has come. He's taken away all your sin. Not just part of it, not just some of it, not just the part that other people you think they know and they see about you. He's taken away the things that you're ashamed of that you don't want anybody else in this room to know. And Jesus has come. And he's defeated death on the cross. And he's paid for all your sins. You are fully rescued. And so no matter what else is going on in your life, take heart in this. God loves you. And he's rescued you. In a few moments, come to this table with great faith. 
with great encouragement, knowing that Jesus entered this world to save you and to save me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us, for leaving the glory of heaven and coming and taking upon yourself flesh to rescue us and redeem us. And we pray as a church family that all in here tonight would have that true and eternal joy in their souls that comes from being rightly related to God. And we thank you for this table, and we pray that through it, Lord God, you might remind us of your great love for us again. In Jesus' name, amen.